0: You are listening to Episode 9 of Chit Chat with a Therapist. This is Chit Chat with a Therapist, the podcast where clinicians are supported and encouraged to create a private practice that they can be proud of. And now, here is your host, therapist, coach, and future BFF, Melissa Silva. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Chit Chat with a Therapist podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy to be with you and in your ears. I am also happy because today is the first day that I get to tell you about my book pre-launch campaign. Now, if you don't already know, I wrote a book called The Profitable Private Practice, How to Start, Run, and Grow Your Therapy Business. Now, this is for everybody who wants to start a practice or has one and wants it to get bigger so that they can live the lifestyle that they deserve. Now you can pre-order this by going to theprofitableprivatepractice.com and pick what level you would like to contribute to. Now you can just do the bottom level, which is $20 for the book and the ebook, and then they go up from there. So the second package is the book as well as the paperwork package. The second level is the book and free coaching with myself. And then the last level, which is the one I'm super excited about because I just came back from Puerto Rico after planning this, is a three-day retreat with myself and my team in Puerto Rico in March of 2019. Now, this is a steal because at this level, you can order the book, get the coaching, as well as meeting me out in Puerto Rico. So we pay for your three days. We do adventures. We get your business up and going and you get to start the year off way ahead of everybody else. So there's only five spots for that. So you want to make sure that you join that in the pre-launch because from there, the price is just going to go up. So that is my spiel about my brand new book, The Profitable Private Practice. If you haven't watched the book trailer, make sure you get your hands on that as well. So today I am going to be interviewing Kavita Krishna. Now she is a wonderful, most beautiful woman who does OT and we talk about what the importance of knowing about OT as a therapist and how it can play in different levels of the lifespan. So make sure you get her book because she is also an author as well as an occupational therapist. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I know you can tell that I did and I will catch you on the other side. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Chit Chat with a Therapist Live with your host, Melissa Da Silva, that's me. And today, I'm super excited because I am interviewing not only a therapist, but an author, and her name is Kavika Vishta. So welcome. Hi,
1: thank you for having me on, Melissa. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? It's Krishnan, it's a little hard, but yes. I got the first name okay? You sure did. I
0: like it, it kind of rolls off the tongue. (laughs) I kind of want to be in my name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, <savvy. laughs> so, tell us a little bit about you. I'm based in North Carolina at the moment. I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. I came to the States about 15 years ago. So, I'm originally from Malaysia, and I was a therapist there. I came here to do my post-professional master's in Pittsburgh, and then I started working and then I finished my doctorate here and then I met my husband and so this is home for me right now. Wow so Malaysia so you grew up in Malaysia mm-hmm. I grew up in Malaysia but I studied in Singapore most of my life because it's um, it's across the border so I studied there and yeah and then I made my way here And so what got you into this field? Uh, back in the day so this is I've been in it for about 20 odd years. And I was actually the first batch in Singapore who got into the occupational therapy school. I know it sounds so crazy right now, but we were the first batch. And it was a program from University of Sydney and they launched the program in Singapore and I was the first batch. I liked it because it was kind of it had the arts and science together and it was a healthy profession. And you could basically it's occupation and it's improving the quality of life for people. So I really thought that's something I enjoying I have. And did you know
0: this is a field that you wanted to get into since you were little or is this something that you come
1: into as you've grown up? I never heard about it till the day I went in for like a career fair it was and I thought I was actually going to go in for physical therapy you know because you know I was thinking about medicine or social work and as I was walking around it was a booth next to the physical therapy table (laughs) and I was like this sounds interesting. And I pulled it up and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, you know, you can do psychosocial components as well, together with the physical aspects of it. And wow, this is 20 odd years ago. So you're making me go back in time. I looked at it and I thought, this is incredible. Let me apply for it. And I got in. Wow.
0: So for anybody who's watching this or listening to this,
1: what does an occupational therapist do? Well, we look at, uh, so we work across the lifespan from babies right up to those who are much older, and we look at occupations in a person's life. So it can be everything that's meaningful and that's meaningful and purposeful to you. So it can be a child, and play is something that's very important to them, or daily activities of living, you know, from the very basic things like, can you get dressed? Can you eat? Can you go toileting? So someone like with a stroke, for instance, they would have issues. So we go in to assist with that, but we go through that across the lifespan. Many a time a lot of people back in the day would get confused and will ask me, like, what is occupation? Are you gonna find me a job? (laughs) And I'm like, well, I could, but there are other areas. So occupation is basically what you do in everyday life and what's important and meaningful. And so we will work through that in finding what's useful to you and looking at those components and helping you get back to independent living again or as independent as possible. And so are you allowed to be creative in your job? Because I think of occupational therapy, I think of like all those interesting toys and tools that you can use. That's the best part about being an OT. You really think outside the box all the time because it really depends on what a person needs. So from the assistive devices that we get for them, or home modifications or modifications to school, you have to really think outside the box of what you need for someone. For example, if you have a person going back to work and leisure, it might be maybe golf, for instance, you know, and that's difficult for them to get back to what can I do? Or someone on a wheelchair, you know, who's wheelchair-bound, but has interest in, say, bowling or some other activities. So I have to design it such that they can... Get engaged in it and participate in that activity again. Mm. So it's almost like you need
0: somewhat of an engineering
1: kind of mindset, too. We've worked very closely with those as well, but yes, you have to think outside the box and like, what can I do? So you look at the biomechanical, you look at the psychosocial components. So, what my area of specialization is, is in sensory integration, or sensory processing. So I work a lot with kids with autism, ADHD, or typical gamut of kids who have sensory issues. And so like modifying, say, the classroom or the home and working with them in the clinic and what we need to do with them there. Yeah, it's a little different.
0: That area of OT, I think is very important for the therapists to kind of have an understanding too, because especially working as a school social worker for so long, teachers would get into arguments with kids who would be wearing the winter jacket all day and trying to explain to teachers that it's not because they're trying to be a pain. it might be a sensory type of thing or the kid that's carrying around a 50 pound book bag is not going to be reading all those books, but that could be something that's kind of grounding them. So being able to know that stuff and being able to use it as a therapist too, is, I think very, very important.
1: Right. Many a time, And that's what got me writing this book as well. So it's part of my doctoral work, but it was really geared to its parents as well. Because a lot of times, not just therapists, but also parents when they get, you know, when their child gets first diagnosed, it's not something that's very common. I think it's getting more common now hearing the word sensory processing disorder or sensory integration dysfunction, but previously they didn't know what it was. And making them understand that this might be an underlying sensory processing issue that can manifest behaviorally. Mm. So many times these kids are getting reprimanded for, you know, maybe misbehaving or looking odd, but you're like, no, it's really a survival trait for them because, you know, they might be tactile sensitive. And so if somebody comes from behind and touch them, yes, it's going to be difficult for them. And they're going to, you know, they might push away. Many of these kids, especially when they're defensive, get into Bites, right? Somebody touches them and then now you have a brawl going on, right? Or they might push or tug away. But really, if you understand the underlying issue where it could be so aversive to them and the way I describe it to teachers and especially parents, is, it's like scratching on a chalkboard and it's so uncomfortable for them. So that's why before it happens, they push you off. These are also the kids that you don't, you know, you see in the playground that might be sitting in a corner. When everybody else is off, they will play. Parents also say, you know, they're playing on their own. They won't really play for very long. I said, but if you think about kids, what do they do? They don't give you your personal space. They bump, they, you know, it's just accidental. They bump into each other. So that makes it difficult for them. And so that's why they kind of pull away or they look like they're alone. But they're still looking at the other kids. And one child in particular I have in mind was a child who was sent to a psychologist for a while. And it was a psychologist who sent him over to me This child went into anxiety and we say, and that's true because the limbic system fires off, you know, because if you are uncomfortable with something and imagine going back to confronting it, most of us will get anxious too. (laughs) And that's a similar trait for them. And so this child with the mom was saying, when he came into the clinic, he took off his shoes and I noticed he pulled his feet up. He will not touch the carpet floor. You know, that's one of those quick signs. And then the mom said, You know, he he will look at his sister and brother playing outside the window, but he won't go out. And I said, Just a couple of things I asked the kid and I said, I think this poor kiddo is actually having tactile issues and it's so uncomfortable. And she said, Yep, he's got like a limited number of foods that he will eat, limited number of, you know, kind of clothing that he'll wear. And I said, Yeah, because when the tags touch him it's constantly aversive for him. And so he's getting distracted or he's uncomfortable. So that's why he's pulling and he's scratching. And that's just one of the sensory systems. And so usually I'll give them like a whole gamut of an assessment called the sensory profile, which I really like because it's standardized assessment. So it's a great platform to start from. But then as they start filling it up, I'll say like, yeah, you know, this child has maybe auditory issues. And that's why they always look distracted and they can't pay attention because some parents will go like, yep, I think he has selective listening. And I'm like, well, you know, I know it's a developmental stage, but really with him, it's not. He can't hear it. It's just being in a carnival when the TV is going on, the other kids are also making noise, and you have all the visual distractions as well that's going on for him. Uh, he can't really hear. So he can't, you know, discriminate between the foreground and the background for this child. And so... And I also tell them it's usually like layers that you're working on. So it might be like tactile that's most predominant right now. As we start working that, we'll see, okay, this is the child who's covering his ear when when maybe a bike goes by. I had one child where the honking, you know, uh, and they're walking across the street. Mom is terrified because that will just make the child just dark. Yeah, because it's so aversive. And again, if you think about the sympathetic system of the flight and fright, they want to survive. So they're like running away from what's aversive to them. See, I can keep going on with stories, but. (laughs) It reminds me of a story
0: where I used to work in a high school and we used to have this one student who would miss a few days in a row every month or so and come to find out it was because of the haircut. And it wasn't even just, like, the hair style. It was this feeling of, like, a piece of their body being cut off and then having to wear, like, a hood for the longest time until the hair would grow out. But mom would fight. I mean, they would get into, like, these violent fights because of this hair-cutting situation. And until I just said, like, let him grow that hair out, things were much better after that. But, yeah, even things
1: like down to haircut, that Mm -hmm. sensory issue. Yeah. And that's one, one of the areas that I put, I've listed in the book as well. Like, what are your strategies before you go in? Because if you talk to these kids, just having the razor and the snipping, mm-hmm. it, that's so aversive and it's so close to them. And then the shaving, it's like, it's very uncomfortable. And you know, when your hair drops on your skin, that just makes them go wild. Like, it's so uncomfortable for them. And when you talk about putting the cap on, it totally makes sense because it's modulation. It's like compression. Mm-hmm. on the head. So the child's getting like a compression now on the head. So he's feeling more modulated. It's like bumping your hand on something and then you're rubbing and then you feel better. That's kind of what the child is doing. But yeah, hair cutting, nail cutting, <laughs> showering <laughs> in the morning. Those are some painful things for these kids just because parents don't understand, not parents don't understand, they're beginning to understand. But for this child, like a bath might sometimes be better than a shower. Because with a shower, you can't predict when it's going to hit your body, but we can also work on grading that process for them slowly. Yeah. So, this book, what is the name of the book that you just wrote? The book is called The SI Solution The Definitive Family Guide to Thriving During Sensory Integration Dysfunction. Wow. (laughs) What made you decide to write? Well, over the years working as a therapist, one thing I have repeatedly talked to different parents about is it's almost identical. The stories are I'm having either difficulties with feeding or showering is difficult for them. Toileting is hard. Bathing is difficult. Putting on clothes in the morning, trying to meet that deadline, getting to school on time. But think of all the things that are listed in the morning that you have to get up, you have to walk. Oh, toothbrushing, you know, that is so difficult. And so I decided, why don't I have a book that's stories that I keep talking about and strategies that I keep talking about, why don't I talk, tell parents, at least in this book, or anyone new to sensory processing disorder, what is the theory behind it? Mm-hmm. What are the schools of thought? What are the different kinds of treatments that go in combination, like sound therapy, depression the therapy? The zones of regulation or the alert program, all the different ones, so that they can go in, click on those links, read it for themselves because it goes into those websites. Also, like hypotherapy. How are those all helping with this process? Because you'll see different clinicians who are specialized in the different areas and they'll pull that. It's like pulling out of their toolbox what's important for that particular child. So, if you understand the background of why they're doing what they're doing, it empowers the parent as well. And then I have the other sections of, okay, So now you're home and your child is doing this. What are the strategies of before you do this activity? How can you prep your child with that? You know, it could be video modeling. It could be using the PEC system for them or a schedule for them. Even a social story like going to a dentist, you know, what, how can you prep them? And then during the process, what could you do for them so that they feel safe Mm -hmm. during that time? So I have that listed out as simple as possible. And so
0: for parents who might not have access to the pet, is there another way they can get
1: visuals for the home? Yes. Yeah. And so again, in the book, what I did was I kind of put down an activity schedule from so forth throughout the day. And then I also break it down to say just the morning when you come back from school or uh, sleep time, because sometimes that's difficult for them getting the child to go to sleep. Why I did it that way was, to give parents an option because everybody's different, everybody's lives are different, and some parents will say, this is too much for me. Can I just work on just one part of it first? And so for that reason, I've kind of broken it down as well for them. I also have like two cheat sheets in in the book as well. One is for if your child is hyper aroused and you see some tactile issues, what can you do? What are some of the strategies? Or before you're going out and you know it's gonna be difficult, noise cancelling headphones. It's simple things that we don't think about, but if you know beforehand you can prep better for it and the child knows, okay, I have this so I can put it on. It's usually the unknown that makes it difficult for them. Do you see that these
0: sensory things follow them into adulthood or is it something that they grow out of?
1: That's a great question. So I have seen children who, if you can treat it earlier, you're working with the system, the sensory system itself. You're teaching both the family, the caregiver, and the child, as the child grows up, tools and strategies mm-hmm. so they're better equipped. So I have had a child who came in when he was 10, and now he's in college. He's gone into college. But from where he started from, where he, he would this is from the school system that I got, he would sit under the table, mm-hmm. right, in school. And especially during tests, he would take several breaks. So, like, asking this child, like, and they usually don't know till we start breaking it down for them. He said just hearing the other kids writing on the paper was just too much for him. Or sometimes, you know, you flip the pen a little bit. That was just too much for the child as well. He also had some visual sensitivities going on. I mean, there were just so many different things. But I could work with him and tell him, okay, this is what's happening, and this is how we're going to work it out. And we were also able to write to the school And work with the school OT as well, say, okay, this is the issues. I can send my letter in as well. And we worked out times where during exams, or tests, he would have a little bit more time for him. And then we had little strips as well, you know, so that it'll be easier for him to read material. So different strategies for him. And he brought that into high school. And I know even in high school, the mom was a huge advocate. And so we were working with the school system as well on what they needed to do. But the great thing is the kid understood, and now he's an adolescent, but he knew, and he would tell me, this is what's happening, and he used to play baseball as well, and he would say, he was a strong, steady kid, and he was training really well, and one day he came back and he said, I'm not sure what's happening. Mom said, I don't know what's happening, this league is going on, and he's not hitting the ball, he's missing it. So we were doing... We were working all on the sensory motor aspects. And I said, I, I must be missing something. And finally, we discovered that this poet got a very high pain tolerance. And he had an ingrown toenail. And either mom or him said, you know, do you want to take a look? at This is like 15 minutes into the session. She pulled off the sock. And I looked at it. And I'm like, could you just go down to the ER like right now? <laughs> right now. And so she came back after that. And she, she called me. And she said yeah, the doctor said it's like an ingrown toenail for about a month and she's not sure how he's walking around. And I said, that's probably it because he, he has high pain tolerance, so he's not even sensing it, but the body is responding, and that's why he's not, you know, aware, like something's going on. But that was how it was manifested. With the same child, we had the coach or the referee was shouting out commands very close to him and that because he had auditory issues and that made him really difficult for him to kind of regroup to watch the ball and so mom spoke with the referee and he repositioned himself so the understanding from the community is really good as well when people begin to understand like no he's not trying to be difficult he really has sensory issues and what we can do and once the referee understood and the coach understood it better, it made his life a lot easier as well. Right nice. now, if somebody wants to get a hold of your book, where can they find it? You can go onto my website, it's called healing com. so you can get the ebook from there. It's I also have it on Amazon, that's a paperback copy. And maybe we can put a link to it? I definitely can, and uh, for your viewers, I'll give a 20% discount for the ebook. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the more people who have the tools, it's, you know, it's better. We can, we can reach out to more families. Yeah, absolutely. I
0: think that all therapists and all parents should be able to, like, take a look at this book because even if your kid may not be diagnosed with anything, there might be something in there that can help them. You know, even just maybe with a a nighttime routine or a dressing
1: routine. So I think it's going to be a great tool for everybody to get their hands on. Thank you. Yes, definitely. The nighttime routine, I have a whole section on that. Because if your child doesn't sleep well, he's, you know, he's not going to be very regulated in the day. And that's a common problem with these kids.
0: Which is the same for adults, too. Yes. not sleep.
1: to be regulated in the day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all your wisdom. I really appreciate that. And I encourage everybody to go and get your book.
1: Well, thank you so much, Melissa. It was really fun. Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon.
0: So make sure that you check out her book and her website, and you can find all that at my website on the show notes at chitchatwithatherapist.com. Now, remember, if you haven't done so already, make sure you pre-order my book, The Profitable Private Practice, and you can get that at theprofitableprivatepractice.com and also find that on the show notes. So until next time, keep being amazing and keep inspiring others. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye for now.